0: Greetings, and welcome to Beetle Stuffology, where two old friends sit about and talk BS, Beetle Stuff, on a track-by-track basis, pretty much for the sake of it. You know, eventually I'm going to get fed up saying this introduction, but we're sticking with it for the time being, and there's nothing you That's can do fine. to stop us. It, no. <laughs> anyway... Just drop it in from another episode. Exactly, yeah. Just put copy-paste. That'll do us fine. Anyway, I'm J.G. Macquarie, and I'm here with my co-host Andrew Deacon, who is providing backing vocals on this introduction. Say hi, Andrew. Hello. How are you doing?
1: Good. Yeah, good. It's always good to shake things up every
0: every once in a while isn't it? exactly yeah we don't want to fall into a this early that would be that would be a simply terrible thing right let's get on with it this week we're discussing twist and shout so we are covering the final song on please please me and of course the last cover version on the album as well so uh let's just get straight into it what are your thoughts hmm yeah
1: um mm. right i i i have do I say I have a problem with Twist and Shout? I don't have a problem with Twist and Shout. Twist and Shout is a great way to close the album. But Twist and Shout has developed a life of its own in the public consciousness that I don't think it deserves. There you go. There's my opener. What are you going to do with that?
0: OK. Um, well, I think that probably gives us a good place to, to to start the discussion. Why do you think that, Andrew?
1: Well, I think it's um, it's about the creation of myths, um and you know without wishing to get too far into you know sort of cultural theory i i I think that it has been ascribed a meaning funnily enough on the last episode we were talking about the lyrics of, of there's a place and and how you know people have interpreted it as being something about mental illness and so on and so forth i think with this the whole story about how it was recorded They had two goes at it, but they took the first because John's voice was disintegrating. Um, You know, has has lent it this sort of romanticised nature um, and and a power that I don't actually think it has. Now that's not necessarily the fault of the Beatles. I actually think the song itself is really overrated. There's not much to it.
0: Okay, fair enough. enough. Yeah, Yeah.
1: twist Twist and and shout. It's no boys. boys. It's not. It's not. And I've been saying this for a few episodes now that that boys, um, you know, I, perhaps before revisiting the album, you know, boys would have been a song that I would have just glossed over really quickly. But I think there's more energy, vitality, life in that than there is in, in Twist and Shout. And I will stand by that until the day I hurt a bit.
0: Okay, well, that's perfectly reasonable approach to kind of
1: take. Yeah, I'm not prepared to die on that hill, but you know, just until it becomes slightly uncomfortable. Yeah, no, I like wounding at best. Yeah, I mean, okay, I, I, think, I mean, there, there are various things, on there? That, that, you know, for a certain generation, it may, may be that the story of Lennon recording it isn't so important, but the Ferris Bueller factor for people of a certain age. Has also then lent it, um, you know, uh, a value. And you know, Ferris Bueller is is another one of those those cultural products where the myth is much more important than the reality. Because let's face it, the character of Ferris Bueller is an asshole. Um, however, you know, if you were of a certain age when you watch that film, it like he's a kid who's sucking it to authority, man. Actually, he treats people really, really badly, and is such a snobby, spoiled, rich kid. Um, anyway, yeah, without wishing to get slightly off off topic, these, these sort of things all kind of roll into themselves. And rather than than revisit them and think, "Well, am I actually right about that? Am I prepared to go back and change my mind?" We almost just buy into that that myth and carry forward. See also, <laughs> Die Hard as a Christmas movie. Okay, right. You will go. <laughs> this could be a long episode if you you just just keep throwing those things back at me and and this could be the longest episode we've done yet.
0: Okay, excellent stuff. Well, very much something for everybody to look forward to. I think you'll agree. I, I, I mean, I do have a lot of I do have a lot of sympathy with that and I think one of the nice things about being able to do a podcast like this is being able to kind of strip away some of that mythologization and, and kind of get back to the actual music of it. And when it comes down to it, the, this version of Twist and Shout, I mean, it's not as good as Boys. I'm, I'm, I'm with you there. I'm going yep. to agree with you there. But but particularly what value this song has, I think it's almost exclusively coming from the rhythm section. I think McCartney and Starr are really good on this. And it's very, it's very instructive to sort of see how this song developed because there's basically two important versions prior to the Beatles one so there's the the Isley Brothers version and which was a, a hit of course before the Beatles version and then there's the original and it's one of those songs which is very I think it's very interesting to see how the song develops through different versions and through different styles and it's definitely one of the ones where you can see a real Kind of progression in terms of the way that it's performed in terms of the way that it's interpreted because the song itself is not as you said it there's not a vast amount to it really so when it comes to covering the song whoever it is that's doing the cover version and don't worry salt and pepper coming up soon uh, (laughs) whoever it is that are doing the cover version need to find some way of stamping their own authority on it stamping their own kind of personality so that that's what comes through and i think at least as, in, in as far as the song kind of has value in and of itself, I think that's kind of where it lies. It's a very interesting kind of bellwether for uh, interpretation. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, it's interesting when you, um, you go back and listen to the, the original uh, Phil Spector produced version for the, um, the top notes, wonderfully named. And certainly when you listen to that, you think, is this the same song? it doesn't feel like the same song at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's quite instructive then to listen to, I would listen to, to read about what the, um, you know, the writers originally thought and thinking that actually this does not reflect the song as we we wrote it. So therefore being pleased when the Isley Brothers version came along, um, you've got something that's an awful lot more um, substantial. So it, it just... You, you think, right, okay, so what is there about this song that that works? It's a party song, and I think that's why the Beatles version works, it, it sort of finds something in it that is kind of raw and energetic, uh, where you're not that bothered about the fact that the lyrics are nonsensical, that... There's not really a huge amount in terms of, um, you know, melodic variation. Um, you know, you have a few lines that are repeated and then you get some uh, harmonisation and a little bit of screaming and then back to where you started and then you build up all over again. So it's, it's all in, you know, it's all sleight of hand for me with this, um, which actually you don't get on the Isley Brothers uh, version. You know, there is that kind of soulful element to it that really works and and gives you something that is, yeah, a party song, but also something that has a little bit of kind of depth and, dare I say, authenticity without necessarily being able to evidence exactly what I mean by that.
0: Um, yeah, I, I, I really, I should straight off the bat, I should really say, I really love uh, the Icy version, uh, Isley Brothers version of yeah. this song. I think it's absolutely terrific. It's, it's absolutely shot through with an energy, um, but a very different kind of energy from the Beatles version. And, and yeah, like you said, it, it it's hard to believe that this is the same song that was recorded by the Top Notes because the, the Top Notes version is incredibly kind of bland and kind of just, just nothing, whereas. Um, I mean, I, I mean, just the voices alone in the Isley Brothers version is is, is more than enough, but it, it's got that kind of real sort of energy to it, which which just is very beguiling. It's, it, it's incredibly kind of, um, yeah, appealing. It pulls you in, it keeps you in. It's not something which is necessarily, um, you know, going to revolutionise the world of music, but it's just incredibly appealing, it's incredibly likable, and it really does do that thing of stamping that band's, you know, personality on it. It 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 sounds like it was recorded by that group. There's nothing anonymous anonymous about it. The original version is pretty blank. It's pretty anonymous. Yeah. It could it could literally be anyone. The Isley Brothers version is really powerful precisely because they are able to to add all this kind of um, real intensity and energy to it and a lot of the a lot of the things that people will sort of naturally associate the songs especially the whoops and the yes and all that kind of business that a lot of that comes from from the icy brothers version not from the original recording so you know above and beyond the kind of the influence of the beatles version on on the covers that come after them there's plenty of stuff in the icy brothers version which very clearly have a direct influence on on the way that the beatles then went on to record it
1: yeah there's there's a um, if you like a coolness uh to it that that really works and you can see why it would have been attractive to um you know a band that were were pulling their their covers through from um you know bands like that uh you know so it, it's so in, in instructive isn't it sort of just to look at the the range of influences that the beatles had and that, yes, there were the, the, the references we've made in previous podcasts to, to show tunes, um, you know, but also predominantly it's um, some of those black groups and, and girl groups um, yeah, in, in America. Um, so there's, there's something, you know, of, of that, that sense of excitement uh, of a band saying, here are the things that excite us, we want them to excite you. As well, and that does work. And and the the, the big indication I think of, of why it does at least have some energy is not in and you go again. It's not in the songwriting, because the songwriting is well. I'll I'll make a comparison um, in in a minute, but I'll, I'll I'll get this this point out first. That the excitement and the energy comes from the fact that this is the most played Beatles song live. This is the one that sits at the top of, uh, of all the songs that they play, certainly across the recorded uh, set lists on yeah, um, a website, like setlist.fm. So they have played this more times than any other song. Of course they knew it inside out. Of course they knew how to how to position it in a set and how to get the audience excited by it, how to build up the energy and the enthusiasm in a performance. It's just a song they play day in, day out for several years. And that's really, really instinctive. Now, if you'll bear with me a second, the comparison that I've got in terms of the sophistication of the song uh, might seem like an odd one, uh, but, ladies and gents, I give you possibly one of the more famous party songs of of its particular era, "Love Shack" by the B-52s.
0: Don't stop there. Keep going. Oh, no, 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 no. no <laughs> I'm,
1: I'm, I'm, you know, just in the sense that there's there's nothing deep or meaningful. To it, it's just a hey, everyone, let's have a good time. I mean, the other one was you know like let's twist again by Chubby Checker. You know, it, it sort of fits in that kind of energy-driven song that is about having a good time. You know, which is quite a pleasant shift on from there's a place, which is you know the kind of song that predominates in in a lot of you know fratty white boy. Um, pop music like oh woe is me isn't everything really bad even though really everything isn't actually that bad you know here we've got a hey everyone here's some energy here's some fun let's all have a good time and you know that works well no absolutely yeah what, what i yeah, would like um are many 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 listeners around the world to bear in mind is i don't dislike the song it's it's great It it was one of those access points for me Listening to, um, you know, albums like this when I was younger, you would get through the the things that were a bit kind of daft, Um, you know, Ask Me Why and There's a Place and, um, you know, A Taste of Honey. And it would be a song like this that would stand out because it just had that vitality to it. it's also one of those songs that when you go back and you listen to it time and time again you realize actually it's a little bit empty and facile
0: well yeah and that is that is definitely a feature of the songwriting i mean the only real quality that the song has comes from the performance of it and i think it's interesting the way that the performance is kind of reinterpreted from the isley brothers version as well particularly the kind of main dumb kind of riff because you know in the Isley Brothers it's played on brass you've got that slightly goose honking um, horn um, carrying it whereas that gets dropped down to bass and guitar on on the Beatles version and again it's one of the things that makes this song sound very kind of in the way that the kind of the brass section makes the Isley Brothers version sound like them, but it's suddenly the, the, that that kind of main melody is being carried on the instruments, which are, are you know, fundamental parts of the group. But I think, like I mentioned before, that the rhythm section is what really makes this song, but it, it makes a huge difference, particularly the bass line on the Isley Brothers version is basically nothing. It's, it's perfunctory almost, and that doesn't affect the quality of the song, particularly or the final recording, but it's very clear that there's no effort really being put into it this song needs to have a bass here's the bass right let's all move on with their lives whereas mccartney is really working on the bass here and 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 he's locking in absolute rock steady with 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 ringo And, and ringo's doing a really good reproduction of the the drums, which are on the Isley Brothers version, but it's not just a reproduction. He's putting his own kind of personality. So it's not like, you know, people always talk about the cliche of the back, you know, the left handed fills and all that kind of stuff. It's not just that, but he's really, really putting emphasis in the way that he can play this drum line um, both capturing the original but also sort of developing it on so that it's it's kind of in their own style and again that obviously works perfectly with, with what McCartney's doing on bass as well and it make, it make again when I, I'm talking about sort of stamping personality in the song but that's what stamps the personality in this yes of course you've got Lennon's vocal right up front and sort of screaming away or whatever but I really think it's the rhythm section in this song which make it sound like a Beatles song it's such a powerful driver of the song and I think that's where I think that's where the real. If the song has a soul in the Beatles version, I think that's where it lies.
1: Okay, so that's quite interesting because I think this is a, a theme that we've or I've touched on before. Because of course you are very good at going, uh, you know, on this. Ringo's doing this, and all oh, the bassline and this is doing this. I think I, I kind of fall into the the category of the more casual listener, and of course there, what a lot of people will take away from it is the, um, you know, the that sort of the. the the riff that George is playing between lines, and of course the um, the screaming and and the shouting, um, you know the the energy um, that, that goes into it. It's quite interesting reading that, um, you know, John you know, again as much as you can ever take what John uh, said at face value, but was reported afterwards to say that it destroyed his voice for for you know for quite a while afterwards, and uh, you know swallowing was like swallowing razor blades uh, and that he really didn't like it and that's when you know go off and, and have a listen to some other versions and the version that they recorded in um on the um ed sullivan show um the following year is is quite interesting because the vocal is a lot clearer and I wonder if maybe also John is is aware of the fact that they are. It's not their first appearance on the Ed Sullivan Show, although apparently it was recorded, um, you know, before the first one was broadcast. It was their their third appearance. Um, you know, he is clearly enunciating. He is getting his words out. You know, there's that definite effort to communicate in a way that is, you know, fun, exciting. But not quite as raw as the, the version on the recording. And, and as a result, it's a much better vocal version. Um and and just feels a little bit more um like a like a bit, I would say a cohesive effort. Again, sometimes it feels like I'm throwing these these phrases out without really being able to justify what they mean, but it sounds much more like a band on top of their game as opposed to. A band who are recording at the end of a session where they're not really feeling very well, um, but it, and that's why versions like that really work for me. It, it's you know it's good fun to to watch them play it as well to see the the harmonies working. And it hadn't occurred to me, I don't think ever when I'd listened to it that when they go into the the three part harmony on the uh that it's you know it's John that sings and then he holds it and then it's George. Second, and it's Paul that comes in with the the highest one of all at the end before they then go into the you know the literal shaking. So I, th- I think sometimes being able to see that and and to sort of join up a few of those dots, um, you know, really works. But yeah, let's listen to some other versions. Listen to the the version on the roll Variety performance as well, and and just see what there is out there. Yeah, you know, it's it's difficult, isn't it? Because um, the recorded version is the one that is stuck in time. And the one that therefore gets referred to gets played, but they played this song so many times, and you must get the feeling that they played it so many times better than the version that's on the album.
0: I think that's probably f- yeah, definitely fair observation. And when it comes to sort of playing the song with that degree of frequency, it, you know, you can't you can't help but improve, I would think, uh, in in the way that you deliver it. But I think it's also interesting to say that when. Um, when this album was being recorded, I don't know particularly how much expectation there was. I mean, obviously, you know, Parlophone EMI were prepared to put their hands in their pocket and, and sort of fund the recording of it. But I don't know how much kind of was expected to come out of it. Maybe they would get a couple of singles that would do okay or whatever. It probably, I think it's fair to say wouldn't have been anticipated as being this kind of vast kind of redefining uh pop music kind of entry into the canon and you know that kind of may be something which is reflected in the approach i.e when they're recording the album you know they've been out on tour they've stopped they've come back in to do the recording they're going straight back out on tour again once the recording has been finished etc cetera, etc cetera. it's just another thing that they are doing along of, along with all the other things they're doing to try and get the band off the ground When it comes to something like uh, recording on the Ed Sullivan show, like you say, it's a different kind of performance. Lennon is enunciating much clearer. There's, I think, a real... Effort to kind of improve the professionalism of the band because they are trying to actively win over a different audience. You know, they they understand the significance of this. Like you said, it's not the first time that they've they've been on the Ed Sullivan Show. They know what a difference a performance on this show can make, and just that difference of emphasis. It's not at the fag end of a, a recording session where there's no particularly great expectations. It's in front of an American audience, and they are basically the first British band to ever actually be in that position. So there's a real motivation to get this right and that I think can also account for it as well.
1: It's it's the bowing I like. Yeah it's a, it's very classy isn't it? it's very very upscale.
0: Shake it all baby
1: shake it all baby twist and shout and bow. Thank you so much <laughs> for having us. Um, lovely thank you very much. Uh, yes. Hope we haven't offended you too much. It's it's such a lovely little thing. Um, I don't know whether or not that sort of thing actually had an effect on on the audience. Whether that was something that made mums and dads go, oh, well, they can't be all bad, can they? Um, but it just seems like such a um, such a contrast with what they're singing about to to then do that. So, yeah, you know, well done, Brian, for for insisting on on that in terms of showmanship. Um, yeah, have you have you seen much of the Royal Variety Show? Because of course it's the this this again is is the myth, isn't it? Because this song is preceded with the old uh, <laughs> "rattle your jewellery comment. Yes. Um You know, and they they were such wags, weren't they? Look at them all challenging authority. Um, I don't have you have you seen any of the the Royal Variety Show?
0: Yeah, yeah, I've seen the whole thing. Yeah.
1: Okay, so the the fact that they they make that joke, and then actually when everyone is brought out at the end, um, and they're all. You know, they then you know everyone turns and bows to. Um, I think it was the Queen Mother and, and Princess Margaret. It didn't it look like the Queen was actually uh, in the royal box? Um, you know, is is quite so. They were, you know, cheeky chappies, but they weren't really pushing the the authority um, in any way, shape, or form. And they did seem genuinely pleased and excited to be there. And you know, massive break and all of that. It's it's just an, 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 you know another one of those those little things that that um, makes you sort of think this is that that transfer of um, one generation to another because um, they were the only you know pop band on there so we're talking nineteen sixty four here um, I think no sorry it's nineteen sixty three the Royal Variety Show and um, they were the only pop act on there and and when they are brought out it's it's quite in, instructive I, I I sort of made a little note of the acts that are brought out afterwards. Um, and and therefore are the acts who are, you know, more significant uh, than the Beatles at that point. And we've got, um, you know, Eric Sykes and Hattie Jakes. Okay, you know, big comedy names, that's fair enough. Uh, Wilfie Bramble and Ari H. Corbett for their, you know, they were performing as Steptoe and Son, you know, massive sitcom at the time. Flanders and Swan. Now that's really, (laughs) you know, um... You know, really good Flanders some very, very funny songs, but, you know, not in, certainly in this day and age regarded with, with you know, anything, really. I think they are probably quite forgotten. We get Tommy Steele, Max Bygraves, Harry Seeker. We've got entertainers basically coming out. Uh, someone called Buddy Greco, who I had to, uh, um, to look up on the internet, doesn't really appear to have had any hits, but seemed to be an entertainer. And then lastly, Marlena Dietrich. You know so there are big stars for the time, but most, if not all, of those big stars, possible exception of maybe Wilfred Bramble and, and Harry H. Corbett, really, are, are on the wane. Actually, in fairness, um, uh, Eric Sykes and Hattie Jakes had a massive sitcom in the 70s, so you know, we'll, we'll forgive them that. But most of those are, are on the wane at that point, you know, sort of big names in entertainment who were probably looking at the Beatles thinking, right, okay, here we go. And in fact, at the very end, Harry um steps forward. He's in his outfit for Pickwick the Musical. And he sort of... He's doing that thing, and, and you know the reason we're all here is because we're collecting for entertainers who've fallen on hard times. And he has got a, a, he makes a joke with the wig about, oh, this is what the Beatles will look like in, in 50 years' time. And I wonder, think, did anyone actually think that the Beatles would last another 50 years? You know, did anyone think that pop at all would last 50s, let alone twist and shout? Let alone twist and shout being referenced in a film in the 80s that gave it a new burst of life you know it's it's just so crazy to think that these two minutes have lived for such a long time through so many different iterations that you know you probably wouldn't take long to sit someone down um and say okay list me songs by the Beatles before they get to twist and shout the myth is so great for this song so you know it's it's, these are interesting times these are it's an interesting point where you know the Beatles are, are on the rise, where their their energy is being, um, you know, transmitted through songs like this, where the myth is being created through songs like this, and you know, as a result, there are some songs that live beyond the Beatles, and I think "Twist and Shout" is one of those.
0: Yeah, I think that's probably true. I mean, I think that its cultural footprint is much greater than the boot that made it, if that's uh, one way of putting it. It's one of those songs that I do think, for whatever reason, that was that was the moment for it, and we'll we'll come up against this again when we when we get to she loves you uh, in a, in a couple of episodes time. But we're definitely we're definitely at that point where these songs can have that kind of um, cultural impact, and and sort of speaking to the broader culture, you know, there's the horrible cliche about you know, well, you know, the, there was no uh, there was no. Great pop culture until the Beatles came along, and then everything, um, everything changed. And it is that is kind of a lazy cliche, but there is obviously a, a grain of truth in it. And that kind of the first burst of rock and roll, particularly in the late fifties. So, so particularly, um, you know, Elvis and 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 um, Buddy Holly and all those kind of acts, but also acts like you know Eddie Cochran as well. Um, a lot of it kind of dissipated. Jerry Lee Lewis and all that scandal that had a huge impact on kind of dissipating the the kind of initial impact of uh, rock and roll. And a lot of it kind of fell away towards the end of the fifties and the early sixties. That that initial kind of burst of energy just kind of um, just kind of dissipated. And and the shot in the arm that um, songs like Twist and Shout and certainly She Loves You as well. I think uh, probably even more so. Um, gave to the, to the the charts, gave to the industry is is kind of very indicative of that kind of stagnant culture. And there are little, little, there are these pockets of time where there is just nothing happening from yours and my perspective. We know that's the late 80s as well. It's exactly that thing where music is just sterile and Dead and there is nothing interesting happening. And then, you know, the cliche after that is, of course, Nirvana come along and change everything and blah, blah, blah. That's too simplistic. Of course it is. But there are these little pockets of cultural kind of, um, sort of cultural vacuum into which there is the opportunity for a band to kind of step forward. And that's definitely kind of what happens with the Beatles. Definitely what happens with, with Twist and Shout. The idea that they are performing at the Royal Variety Performance and they are not the headline act is absurd from today's perspective. Yeah. You know it's it's such a it's such a strange thing to think, oh right, there's gonna be people on after they've done this song. You know, it just that that seems so kinda counterintuitive. But like you said, that's the kind of whole mythology yeah. of it that's 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 the the kind of myth industry that is that is built up around songs and performances like this like you mentioned sorry i'm going to go off on a slight tangent now bear with me i promise it's going somewhere okay um you mentioned the idea that uh, you know the whole rattle you jewelry thing and like lennon's being a cheeky chappy or whatever and he's kind of pushing a little bit at the at the edges of what you what were what was deemed acceptable in 1963 but it's not like folk countercultural bloody yeah. blah whatever um but he's kind of making jokes and they're you know blah, blah blah cracking away one of the really interesting things about watching get back is seeing how lenin is during a lot of those sessions because and i think this is one of the huge advantages of get back being eight hours long is is that it gives a sense of perspective which really does help to strip away the mythology, the mythologization that exists around the Twickenham sessions, the Apple sessions, and then eventually the rooftop concert. And one of the great benefits to the additional kind of runtime of Get Back is it allows you to see things kind of as they are. And particularly with John Lennon, he is doing the same kind of thing. He's making jokes, he's being funny, he's entertaining and all the rest of it. And it starts off charming it's nice it's delightful he's a witty guy and he's da 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 all this kind of and by the end of it it's so desperate this incredible need to be the center of attention and that's what if even if you had like a traditional like two or two and a half hour documentary uh, about those sessions, you would kind of lose that you, because the impulse would be to put in when he says a funny line or he cracks a joke or he gets Paul to laugh or whatever. But just like the constant repetition, he just, it's it's like Tommy Cooper or, or whatever. He can't turn it off. Yeah. And I it's I have utterly heard this, exhausting. I have heard there's a relentlessness yeah.
1: to him on, on that.
0: Yeah, it's, it's really fascinating to see yeah. and like, like that kind of royal variety thing. And you see it a little bit when you, when you see um, uh, like press interviews at the time there's just no off switch and and it it comes back to this thing as to whether he was you know really this is the start of that that process which he just cannot get away from and which eventually does you know i think considerable psychological harm essentially
1: i mean we are in danger of getting into psychoanalysis here and then talking about the whole um you know death of his mother, being raised by Aunt Mimi, and... Yeah, I'm, I'm,
0: I don't want to go too Julia, far down that line, but... yeah.
1: Um, <laughs> you know, there, there's all that, which, you know, there, there's probably something in it, that that need for yeah. um, um, validation um, from others, or needing to have that um, creative output. Um, you know, I, th- I think it's interesting. I mean, the, the other thing that, that I, I do want to, not so much pick you up on, but just to sort of go back over, is the fact that... You know, you do get you know, talking about the fact there's nothing going on at particular times, and then I I know you were generalizing, then oh suddenly nirvana come along and and everything's great, but nothing comes out of of a vacuum.
0: No, of course not, of course Uh, not.
1: And and there were lots of, of very interesting things going on in in the late 80s that were bubbling under the surface that became hugely popular. So, you know, like nirvana didn't just come out of of nowhere. They were playing for a while and they were influenced by X, Y, and Z, um, you know, and and lots of influences there, you know. um, The same thing said about the the 70s and and punk, um, which is fine, except of course people forget that actually, you know, Disco, hello, um, you know, ABBA, hello, you know, there were some really popular, really amazing records around and and even some of that new wave stuff um and you could even then you know the beatles are, are the classic example because they didn't just appear out of uh out of nowhere they appeared out of a music scene that was you know not underground hugely popular in liverpool massive in liverpool a kind of music scene that that you know until i read about it i would never have believed existed um but was was sort of largely ignored by by london you know and and they were working so hard for several years getting good um you know i'm not going to get all malcolm gladwell 10000 hours on you but um but it is that that element of they were taking influences that were taking influences that were taking influences and and actually they managed to hit a moment where their influences and their creativity became culturally important so you know i I I must admit immediately when you said oh nothing good was happening in in the late 80s i was thinking that first stone roses album was pretty good (laughs) Uh, and then you know the the brain starts then working on the case of well you know document was all right too and then you go to the next one and then the next one and the next one um you know so um i i I think it's just that sense that i'm not going to suggest for a moment that you know, music, um, the music industry, and progression of the music industry is linear in that respect because there are periods, and you are right. I mean, the 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 late eighties in British chart music is dominated by Stock Aitken and Waterman.
0: No two, two words, two words for you, Jive Bunny.
1: Well, yeah, yeah, exactly, um, yeah, and you know, just as in the same way as I mean, it, we could have had a conversation about the. Um, you know, Christmas records at some stage, and there, there's a point at which Christmas records are not a thing. Then they become a thing, and then the X Factor comes along, and suddenly it's all about then having, um, you know, a person singing a big ballad-type song, and the Christmas songs disappear. You know, it, things go in in waves like that. However, some things remain constant, which brings us back to. Well, you could say the Beatles and or Twist and Shout, really. Although, in fairness, even the Beatles thing, it's not really true for them. Because I gather there was a period in the 70s where they were fabulously unhip. I
0: I don't know if you remember, but when we first started to, uh, when we became friends, which is when we were at university, so that's 1991, we we were there. They were pretty unhip then it was not a cool thing to be into the beatles that was one of the few things that we had in common that we didn't have in common with anybody else at the time it wasn't really that cool to to be into them and it was before the kind of real the mm-hmm. big kind yeah. of really big revival um that, that sort of came a bit further down the line. And particularly obviously anthology kicks a lot of that off at one point as well yeah. but it wasn't it wasn't that cool back there and it, uh, just sort of um you know, looping back slightly. It, it's also, um, like talking about the cultural vacuum thing, it, it's more about when things become overgrounded. Of course, you're right in terms of the late 80s. You have um, a lot of stuff there. And even if you're talking about, um, the like, UK charts, like the Beautiful South were starting to make an impact. You've got The yeah. Cure hanging about, you know. Madonna um, was the, 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 quite good for a while, let's face yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, but, you know, all that stuff is there, but it's not, it's not quite becoming... Overground, And it's that's the thing. It, it's about it, the, the, the whole cultural vacuum. is about finding the one, it's the vanguard, the one that brings it over the top. It's, of course, it's the same in the 60s with um, with Please Please Me as an album and, and the kind of the explosion of the Beatles. They aren't the only ones. Of course they're not. But they are the ones who are the vanguard for it and sweep so much of that kind of detritus out of the way. And, I mean, you know, the, the, the sheer, like even, you mentioned punk, but even the... Even in the seventies, the sense of cultural isolation just doesn't exist anymore. And a lot of the interesting stuff that was coming out of America, in terms of yeah. uh, like early Dylan, in terms of the 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 the, uh, the Motown groups, the girl groups, all that kind of stuff, you know, Liverpool is the exception to that, not the rule, because it's a port town. There are bits of it in in, in uh, you know other cities, but it it just it just that cultural isolation only really breaks down. Over the course of the sixties, and I'm sure it's something that we'll be talking about more once we yeah. once we kind of get into it. Yeah. Um, I mean, but it, they're still the vanguards; they're still the ones that kind of breach the battlements. It it is. I mean, it's quite easy to over intellectualize things,
1: um, and you know the. I think we've proven the, that the seventies is is you know falls victim to that, and and I think there's a point at which I mean I I used to sort of say these sorts of things, partly for effect, but also partly because they're true. Legally blonde. Is a brilliant film. No Britney Spears Toxic is still one of the greatest songs of the 21st century. You know, um, this is not like you know middle-aged white man trying to to sort of yeah you know, have a particularly challenging point of view or or you know, hey, let's get all kitsch. Just like, frankly, let's go back to the 70s. Remember you're a womble is a killer <laughs> tune. Yeah. It is just fantastic. And you know and, what,
0: and so is funky gibbon. I'm gonna go and die okay. in a hill for funky gibbon. Okay. No,
1: that's that's fair enough. And and I think the the um the point at which I realised some of this was reading the um I think it's the Alex Petridis book on um, um, Broken Greek. Is it Alex Petridis?
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. Um and he, he talks about growing up and listening to some of these great pop songs and and sort of wondering why Nobody else thought that they were quite as as good as his. Now, there's there's some really good footage of the the book launch for that, where Mike Bat is there playing "Remember You're a Womble and it is Excellent. one of the most life affirming clips you could ever uh, want to watch. There's this book about how you know. Okay, so it's not more than about you know um, him and his slightly quirky taste in music and how he became a um, you know a, a music writer. You know, it's more than that. Um, but it is a big theme about you know listening to music and attaching your identity to music, and then you know watching that and and thinking there cannot be a more appropriate song to have at the launch. It's it's just fabulous. It's just absolutely fun. And and you know then to sort of to bring that back round. Of course you know McCartney has been out playing on the road a lot in the last you know ten years or so. And he's really reached back into the back catalogue and has been playing his equivalents of, you know, Remember You're a Womble. He's, you know, the point at which he then flipped back into like, oh, yeah, these Beatles songs are quite good. Let's play more of them, I think, was was a really significant moment.
0: So what's Paul McCartney's equivalent of Remember You're a Womble?
1: Yeah, I don't know. You see, the problem is when you say that, you immediately <laughs> think of the frog chorus, don't you? Yeah, yeah let's not go there. Um yeah, I don't. I don't know. I, lot, there's, I'm sure there's lots of uh, stuff. Um, maybe Maxwell Silverhammer.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I still quite like Maxwell Silverhammer, but we'll gloss over that for the time being, shall we? You're listening to us talking about Twist and Shout.
1: Yeah, we, we haven't mentioned that for about ten minutes. <laughs> no, no. I, I, I no, we, we, we probably
0: should make some effort to mention it again before we wrap all this up, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. Oh, you know, that's that's fair enough. That's fair enough. I mean, you know, it's it's a it's a big cartoon of a song. And you know, it it works. Don't think it's the best song on the album. You know, obviously, you know this is the part where you say, "Boys, there you go, thank you." Um, You know, but it is certainly one of the the thing the songs that if you had it on a CD rather than on vinyl, you would skip through a few songs to get to. Or if, you know, in this digital age and you were just downloading a few songs from it, it would be one of the four or five that you might pay your 99p for, assuming that that worked out as a better deal than buying the whole album and just deleting the ones you didn't want. You know, whatever it is, it, you know, it is fun. It is so much better than, than an awful lot of the covers that their contemporaries produced. But it just doesn't deserve to be thought of in this this monumental fashion. For a song that just says hey everyone, let's party let's party a bit more let's party again, let's do some more partying, yay you know, it's fine it's fun, but it's not the great leap forward and the, other, the other thing I suppose supposed to, to mention is, is that it is significant that it's the last song on the album, it wasn't always yes. a show closer, sometimes it was a show opener, so on that um, Ed Sullivan show Um, they played three songs and this was the first of the three that they played so it's definitely one that you use to get a particular vibe going but it's positioning kind of in you know the opposite end to um, I saw her standing there which of course starts with the one two one two three four you know and then this with the massive you know closing um you know climax followed by the bow uh, I mean that is significant it is that, that thought that this album is is a product from start to finish and, and that's got to be important
0: well thank you for giving me that excellent segue there because that also gives us the opportunity to both wrap up this episode and talk about what we're going to be doing next week so that's what I'm going to do um, so <laughs> next <laughs> smooth I think you'll agree So next week, um, instead of talking about an individual song, we're going to cast our eye over the entire album and we're going to have an opportunity to talk about it as a single product. Now, if you thought that we had planned that, uh, we didn't. But that's how it's worked out, so fantastic. Uh, yeah, so that's what we're going to be doing next week. Now, before that, as always, you can contact us uh, by email. We are beetlestuffology at gmail.com. We are on Twitter at Beatles underscore ology. And you can find more of my writing at www.jgmacquarie.scot, especially if you're particularly fascinated to discover what I thought of Get Back please like, rate and review us on whatever podcast you're using so that more people can find the show. And like I say, next week we're going to be discussing the album in its entirety and we hope you're going to join us for it. But until then, keep listening.